Today, I'm welcoming back to the Reading Corner, Natasha Farron, and we're going to be talking about her wonderful book, which was published just before Christmas 2021, called The Girl Who Talked to Trees. This book could be seen as a companion to Eight Princesses and a Magic Mirror. It has a framing story, and within that, a number of short fairy tale type stories. So first of all, Natasha, I would like to start just by hearing the very beginning of this book, because I think that will set us up beautifully for our conversation. With pleasure. The Girl Who Talked to Trees. In a secret valley, not so very far away from here, there sits a famous old house. It is a grand sort of place with tall pillars and lots of chimneys and a clock tower. But that is not what it is famous for. It is famous for its trees. The house stands in a parkland at the top of a hill. It looks onto a big lawn dotted with beech, an elm and, of course, the splendid tulip tree. The lawn slopes to a river lined with hornbeam, willow and alder. There is a walled orchard in the park too, with a dozen different sorts of apples. Over the bridge, opposite the house, is a wood full of oak, lime, hazel and box. It is a small wood these days, but once upon a time, it was a great forest, the hunting ground of a prince. Sometimes, if you listen carefully, it's almost as though you can hear voices among the trees. One day, it is said, they will grant a wish to the right person. Which is where our story begins, with a girl called Olive. I love that introduction. And before we even get to thinking about Olive, as I was reading, through my head is running, where is this? I had Hampton Court in my mind, but I don't know if it is Hampton Court. No, it's not Hampton Court. It was based very loosely on a place called Polesden Lacey, which is in Surrey. It's near Dorking, where my parents-in-law live, my husband grew up in Dorking and in fact we were married there and um, there's a walk from the church where we got married which is I think the highest church in the North Downs or something anyway there's a beautiful walk through the woods and then you come to this valley as you can imagine with a forest well with woods all around full of ash and elm and beech and lots of beautiful trees and this sort of magical parkland and a house that just sits there perched at the top overlooking all of this and it was very much a sort of playground for my children when they were little. Um, so it's a place that's very dear to me. But really, one of those places where you can still conceive of human beings living in harmony with nature. You can imagine somebody coming there and say, this is so beautiful. I will make this my home and I will care for this place. Um, and that's very much what I wanted the book to be about. It's about trees, but it's also very much about our relationship with trees. Absolutely. Um, and. I suppose one of the things that I also wondered was about the past few years. And one of the things that I found... Specifically referring to COVID. I am. And I found myself walking more Mm. and observing trees. Mm. And I just wondered whether this had also been part of your experience and and possibly if the book grew out of that. Well, yes, very much it was part of my experience. I think a lot of us had that, didn't we? Did the book grow out of that? Not really, because we had already agreed the book before lockdown 
Um, so I was writing it during lockdown. So a lot of it, 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 there's a sort of symbiosis between the two. And then the book itself was actually an incredibly healing process. And it was a perfect book to be writing through lockdown because it gave me this sort of perfect excuse, actually, to go on these sort of long, long walks. And in fact, I think once during, during there was a sort of second or third or 50 millionth lockdown. And I was staying at in a cottage in some woods, talking to trees. And I sat underneath this beech wood, which was like a... I want to say like a cathedral, except it's not because it's alive, you know, and just sort of sitting there. You could sit in at the at the foot of this beech wood and from there you could see the sunrise and just thinking, what would your voice be? Not just what stories could you tell, what would you be saying, but also what voice would you be talking in? And when I first started, started writing the stories, I mean, the truth had very individual voices and very and they sounded almost human my editor said no you, you can't that they sound too human it's, it's really disconcerting and she was very keen that we don't anthropomorphize the trees that they remain trees so in a sense their voice when their voices in fact in the book Olive hears them in her head but they don't actually talk but it was a quite an interesting exercise to sort of I found myself doing that all over the place in, in London there's in in my local park, there's a baobab plane. It's a sort of well, in fact, it's a tree that very much inspired one of the stories in the in the book. It's a tree that was struck by lightning, and then that grew back after the, just after at the end of the Second World War, and everybody thought it was dead, and then it grew back, and it was known locally as a miracle tree, mm-hmm. um, and the tree of hope. And there is that exact tree in a miracle tree, a tree of hope that's been struck by lightning in in one of the stories. Anyway, it was kind of mildly, I mean, it was very trippy, if I'm honest. <laughs> and sort of mildly schizophrenic as well, and, and very, very weird. And it took me to some very strange places in my head. But it was a hell of a lot better than um, what was going on all around. Really interesting listening to you talk there about how you did have distinctive voices, and then they've sort of elided into a more classic storytelling voice but in a way trees do have their own voices because they Mm. sound so different when you sit under them I'm thinking about the poplar tree which is so noisy and sounds and does sound like water and I suppose the other way in which voice comes through for the different trees and we'll talk about some of these trees in a moment it's their concerns the kinds of stories that they tell so cleverly are related to for instance, Box, uh, which is the last tree in the book. <laughs> I had so um, much, the story's I had about so controlling nature. <laughs> box was really, I mean, box. the Box story is the closest I've come to writing a horror story. Yeah, that was, I, I, I had a lot of fun writing that. That was very creepy. But sorry, I interrupted you. Yes, about controlling no, nature. No, no, I, I, I was just saying, you know, the, the, the type of story it's telling is related yeah. to how we've related to that tree, you know. Yeah. It is cut and snipped and shaped yeah. till it's unrecognisable as the yeah. tree it would be if it grew naturally. So that you almost don't think of it as a plant, do you? You think of it as garden furniture most of the time when you see it. It's you feel that we've skipped to the end and we've yes, missed we out about <laughs> eight trees in the middle and, and we haven't even talked about Olive and her story. Mm. Uh, what a great name, obviously, for your heroine. And the olive tree probably has the oldest symbolism amongst tree symbolism. Of course, you must have been thinking about that in naming her. Yes, 
retrospectively, it was it was one of those names which just sort of presented itself as absolutely obvious. And honestly, only later when I sort of sent the stories into my editor and she was like, and of course, Olive, exactly like you did, you know, one of your oldest names, symbolisms. And I was like, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what, my, that's what my subconscious was doing. But yes, Olive, shy Olive, who has who finds it so hard to make friends and is so hard to talk to anybody and whose who's best friend consequently is an oak tree. And I, again, without wanting to anthropomorphize, you know, but there is just something so profound sometimes about our relationship to place and to nature. And I've been so shocked, actually, recently when I've spoken to young children and realized how little they know about nature and how disconnected they are from mm-hmm. nature. I mean, to the point where I am, um, I was volunteering in the school every once, um, once a week and I had this big playroom, play stroke therapy room, and there was a carving of an acorn. And I picked it up and I said, isn't it amazing to think that this little thing will turn into an oak tree? And they just looked at me like I was mad. And so I had to explain, I found a book and I sort of explained, showed them and explained and they're like, oh, wow, that's, that's mad. And I'm fairly sure I was always interested in nature. My parents were great and loved the outdoors and taking us on walks and things. But I'm fairly sure that when I was young, those were things that were taken for granted. And I'm sort of thinking about Robert McFarlane and Jackie Morris's book, you know, The Lost Words. It really drove home to me how there were certain things which I as a child, even even as growing up in West London, took completely for granted, you know, the number of birds and butterflies and trees. They were just well, there were just so many more apart from anything mm. else. So it, to, to me, it, it was important that the tree was a part of Olive. It wasn't just a sort of a nice thing that you do on a, you know, that maybe you go for a nice walk every now and then, but actually it was a, a part of who she is. And it's the part that makes her feel whole as well, because the tree is the only place, is her, you know, her happiest place. It's where there are no demands made on her. She can just be herself. She can read her books. She can do her drawings. She can watch the world around her. And nobody thinks that she's odd. And then it's threatened with destruction by her father for stupid reasons. He just wants to build a little vanity project and he wants to build it there because it has the best view of the house and he wants to build a house that he wants to buy build a little tiny little mini mini replica of his house to where he can have parties and again that was sort of important I mean it's it's very hard you know over the last 10 years maybe I've sort of thought how you know how do you write about the climate and ecological crisis for children you know how do you do it without despairing you know without despairing but also without lying and I still don't know but I had this conversation with a publisher once and he said straight off the bat, he said, you do it through myth and fairy tale. Um, and that's what I've tried to do here. So Sydney with his silly little, his silly vanity house, actually, for me, it was something, it, it's a lot to do with the sort of unthinking way in which we damage our environment. I do love the advice that that publisher gave about fairy tale because they yes. touch us in very deep and profound ways without ever lecturing us. Yeah. And that's what these trees do. You know, the oak guides Olive and tells her she must listen to these different trees in the park. Interesting uh, your selection of trees that no ash, no elm, but we've got linden, which I, is lime, isn't it? But yes, that it isn't is. linden a much nicer <laughs> name for it. Well, lime is confusing as well because 
especially with children. I mean, my my grown up children, you know, I talk about lime trees and they're like, oh, my God, do we have lime trees? It's like, no, no, not. To, we don't have trees that grow lime. We have trees which are called lime trees. You've got older and plain wild apple yeah. tulip. And we've already mentioned the box. Can I ask you what lay behind that selection of trees? Yeah. The oak was a sort of given, again, talking about symbolism. The oak, there's so much symbolism around um, oak trees that there was never going to not be an oak. I wanted trees that were sort of also sort of international. The alder, because I thought it would be fun to do something around, around water and to talk about the kelp forests and to look at trees from a different perspective, your underwater forests. Um, so the alder, the sort of um, introduction to that, you know, the alder that that um, sits with its roots in the water, one of the only woods that hardens in water, that doesn't rot in water, the wood that was used for shipbuilding. It's the it's the wood that underpins um, Venice and Amsterdam. So almost like a mangrove, almost like a mangrove. Yeah, yeah. And we we walk past them without noticing them, you know. But there there they are, just. Fairly you know, miraculous. There was also a whole thing about how they exchange, they draw nutrients out of the soil, and so they're a pioneer species. So where an, where an alder goes, other trees follow because they enrich the soil. So they are a pretty amazing tree. Um, but then there was I also had came up with this idea of the alder that has its roots in the water and just sort of longing to find out the stories of where does the water go and the alder is stuck there and it can't move, but it wants to know, it wants to know more about the sea. It's also an unexpected element in the book. You know, you get to start thinking you're going to have uh, these stories about trees and you don't expect to go underwater. So that was, a, you know, in terms of the pacing of the book, that was a really lovely tree to have kind of halfway through. Oh, that's, um, oh, I'm glad. After a while also, really, I mean, to be honest, there's only so much sort of rustling and creaking and crackling and there are only so many words that you can use about trees. Um, so I thought it would be fun to, to take it underwater. Then a lot of trees were inspired by trees that I that I know. I mean, by actual specimens. So the box was the box that I saw in my, my near my friend's house in Worcester. The tulip tree is a tree that stands in my parents' garden in France, and I always go there in summer or at Christmas. And I had never been there in spring until a few years ago. And you go there in spring and it has these enormous, blousy, show-off, blossomy flowers. <laughs> and we were just, oh my goodness, what is that? I didn't even know it was called a tulip tree. I felt so embarrassed that I hadn't realised how splendid this tree was <laughs> because mm. I'd never seen it before. And so then I did a bit of research into tulip trees and I thought, wow, this is amazing. This tree, which most of the year looks totally ordinary, but then just in the springtime, late May, just has these magnificent flowers. So that was the tulip tree. The linden tree was based on a tree I saw. This was outside Ludlow. A friend took me for a walk and she said, she was just like, wait till you see this. And then she was like, better. And I've rarely seen it. I don't think I've ever seen a tree like that. I mean, it was just vast. I mean, you felt that if you were to climb that tree, you could, you could, be, you could be up there for days. So I kind of fell in love with that one. So that's that's most of them. Oh, then the apple trees. That came from another book. And the book is called A Gentleman in Moscow, which you may have read, a big bestseller. And it's set in Moscow. 
in a hotel. And at one point, the man, the gentleman in question, who was in fact under house arrest in this hotel for 30 years, the only way he can go outside is to go up onto the roof. And there's an old man who keeps pigeons on the roof and he says, oh, look, can you smell? And you can smell, apparently, or you could in those days, from a thousand kilometers away, you can smell the apple blossoms of the forest. And it just completely captured my imagination. And so I sort of did a bit of research into that. And I so longed to go and see these wild apple forests, which, again, are far scarcer than they were. But mm-hmm. it just completely captured my imagination. So that was sort of almost the most um, real, if you like, because it was the one that came from them. Sort of a story inspired by a story. I'd like to, we, we haven't got time to tell everybody about all of the stories that the trees tell, but I'd love to tell listeners a little bit more about the wild apple story, because I really loved the sentiment uh, behind that. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> what was it that you loved? <laughs> so the tree, all apple trees that come from this one tree, don't they, in Kazakhstan, that's their origin? Well, I think various Central Asian countries claim that the original tree, the apple tree in the Garden of Eden, that the Garden of Eden was in their country. I've heard that it's in Georgia and Azerbaijan. Not around. We get the idea. And I sort of love the idea that this the tree has become so ubiquitous around the world. You know, it's sent its roots out and we all love apple. Uh, and then these girls in the story who sort of follow that idea of yes, so the going story... out into the world. Gosh, you're the one who's clever. <laughs> I just told the story. But yes, no, that's exactly what they do. And they talk about they hadn't realised how big the world was. Yes, the three sisters. It's about three sisters who are um, who they're orphans. Their parents have died. They're looked after by their horrible uncle and aunt who want to marry them off to three merchants. And so the girls embroider their veils. So that's a classic storytelling trope, isn't it? They try to delay by embroidering their, their veils slowly, but there comes a day when the veils are ready and they have to go down to, from their mountains into the valley to meet their husbands and to be married and to be separated and to be scattered around the world and possibly never see each other again. And then they escape. Mm. I don't want to give too much away. No. But, but, but yes. Then they gallop off and their veils, which are embroidered with flowers, fall off their heads and cover the trees. And then some magic happens. And then some magic magic happens. And that's how that's how apple blossoms were were created. Yeah, that's that and the mermaid story, I think, are the most magic ones, aren't they? I mean, I did like them all, but I loved as well the storyteller in the play, you know, the wisdom of storytelling that came through. In the plane, the plane tree. I think that that is my favourite, actually. Mm. And that is the quietest of all the stories. Mm. Um, And it's the one with no magic. I mean, no magic, you know, it's a talking tree. But but actually within the story itself, there is no magic, is there? There's just a woman, a duchess, a ruler who wants to go to war and a storyteller who uses the calming influence of a tree to stop the war it's essentially what it is isn't it mm-hmm. and yeah. and uses it to, to to show her what she already has um mm-hmm. the riches that, that she already has mm-hmm. there's no need to go and plunder elsewhere um, which in a way is a mirror 
of what you're doing with this collection. You're using the wisdom of story to convey those ideas about what it means to live a good life, what it means to live in harmony with nature. So you are that storyteller, really. But it's interesting that you say that, actually, because it very quickly became, to me, a book about storytelling. It was a book about trees, but actually it was also a book about storytelling and the power of stories. Um, And again, going back to how do you talk about the climate and ecological crisis? You know, what part do writers and artists, what part can we play in this unfolding catastrophe? Um, And actually, it is to tell stories, um, stories of warning, but also stories of celebration and stories that paint a picture of the world that we could live in if mm-hmm. we paid a bit more attention there we've come we've come full circle to what you were saying about paying attention to trees and that's really all that's required isn't it is to 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 it's what the linden tree says at one point so all we want is for you to leave us alone and you know we can do the rest really just sort of pay attention and maybe step back a little bit it's always yeah. A huge pleasure talking to you, Natasha. I thank you so much for taking the time to come and join me in the reading corner again today. Um, My pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking to you as well. (laughs) In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.